Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 64, The Siege of Belgrade. Now, once again, no new Patreon supporters, but as always, feel free to support or just get in touch. You know, I I recently got a couple emails from listeners uh, I need to respond to, but it's always really nice when you guys reach out, tell me you're enjoying the podcast, ask questions, whatever it is. So always feel feel free to just shoot me an email or a Facebook message. Now, last time, it finally happened. After teasing the possibility Basically, since the beginning of this podcast, Constantinople has fallen. The Byzantine Empire is over, this time for good. And with it, the Ottoman Empire acquired its third capital after Bursa and Adrianople. But it also acquired prestige. The Sultan could claim his empire as the new Rome. Now, of course, the Holy Roman Empire and later the Russian Empire would certainly contest that claim, but still, you know, the Ottomans had some plausible way to claim that they were now the Roman Empire, that they were the new kind of grand empire of the Western world. At the same time, remember, the ability of the West to mount a new crusade against the Ottomans was severely limited after two recent failures. Or at least that's what you'd imagine. But somehow, once again, Hungary is being run by John Hunyadi, and John Hunyadi does not follow the rules of his age. Now, of course, following the fall of Constantinople, we won't, we're not surprised that the Pope called for a new crusade, but time would tell as to whether or not Hungary or any other European powers would actually be capable or willing to muster the strength to mount another crusade. But in the meantime, Sultan Mehmed II, now commonly known as Mehmed the Conqueror, was, to be honest, ascendant. He had achieved the great dream of his royal house, but he wasn't about to rest on his laurels. It was now 1453, and Mehmed, we have to remember, was just 21 years old. 21 years old. He was full of youthful energy, and he was yearning for more. More conquest, greater empire, greater power, greater prestige, more titles, all of it. He wanted more. We have watched him, alongside his father, rule and conquer and go on campaigns since he was a child, basically. Mehmet was born for this. But before he could head off to his next conquest, he had an old enemy to deal with, Skanderbeg. The Albanian leader had been in Italy meeting with the Pope to discuss the next steps in the wars against the Ottomans. In the spring of 1453, as Mehmet was in the midst of his great conquest of Constantinople, Skanderbeg was mounting an offensive on Ottoman Macedonia with the backing of his vassal lord, Alfonso V. Near the city of Tetovo, Skanderbeg met an Ottoman army of about 14,000 soldiers under the command of his old friend from Ottoman service, Ibrahim Pasha. Skanderbeg attempted to draw his opponent into a trap by retreating, but Ibrahim knew Skanderbeg well and he didn't take the bait. Instead, 
he moved into the Polog Valley and made camp. Abandoning his original plan of setting up an ambush, Skanderbeg was forced to prepare for an attack. Despite stormy weather, the Albanians launched a cavalry attack which broke into the Ottoman camp and caused great chaos. In the midst of that chaos, Skanderbeg challenged his old friend to a duel. Skanderbeg won, beheading Ibrahim Pasha and displaying his head on a pike. The resulting panic in the Ottoman ranks allowed the Albanian forces to completely rout them, killing several thousands. Now, quick note, I did find some conflicting information about this era in Albanian history, but all the original sources are in Albanian, and so this is kind of my best guess of the events uh, following this from the sources I could find. So, you know, soon after Skanderbeg's victory at the Battle of Polog, Mehmet completed his conquest of Constantinople. Realizing this, Skanderbeg quickly raised the alarm of yet another Ottoman invasion, gathered money and troops from Alfonso and the Pope, uh, receiving soldiers and money from both of them to aid. Because, well, it was clear, you know, uh, Mehmed had an old grudge against Skanderbeg. Skanderbeg had been a major thorn in his side. And now, you know, Skanderbeg had been re- repeatedly defeating kind of smaller Ottoman armies. But with the con- conquest of Constantinople, it was now quite possible and likely that Mehmed would turn a full-size Ottoman invasion force towards him. So, well, the Albanians had to prepare. But in the meantime... Mehmet clearly felt that while he could do more to defeat Skanderbeg, uh, well, basically he had the resources to mount two offensives at once without much of a problem, and so he prepared for an attack on Serbia. Now, remember, the despot of Serbia, uh, Durad Brankovic, had actively worked against the crusading Hungarians and Albanians in order to preserve Serbia's independence. As well, Brankovic's daughter had actually been married to Mehmet several years previously. And so Mehmet's invasion of Serbia seems a bit strange, but, well, let's be frank. I mean, the fact that the Serbian despot is, for very opportunistic reasons, uh, sort of helping the Ottomans doesn't really in any way diminish Mehmet's desire to conquer Serbia. Uh, We've seen time and time again that while the Ottomans are pretty happy having uh, loyal vassals that contribute money and soldiers... That's really, for them, kind of a temporary situation. Um, you know, for the Ottomans, it's like before they have the capabilities to mount a full conquest and annexation, they'll accept years or even decades of vassalage. But once they have the resources, they'll find any excuse. Doesn't really matter whether or not the vassal has been loyal, but they will conquer. And in fact, Serbia hadn't been an entirely loyal vassal state. Serbia had been a bit unsure of its position for years following the last crusade, allying with Hungary and not always consistently paying its tribute to the Ottomans. And honestly, it seems like Brankovic really just needed to pick a side um, and was now facing the consequences of his inability to do that. So around early 1454, Mehmet sent a demand to Brankovic. He demanded full control of all lands based on Mehmet's marriage to Brankovic's daughter. Now, unsurprisingly, this was refused, and an army was dispatched from Edirne, Adrianople, towards Serbia, ready to conquer it. But while all this had been going on, John Hunyadi had been gathering his own army. That army was ready to fight right about the time Mehmet was on his way to Serbia, And so the Hungarians marched south to meet them. 
Now, the Ottomans had already begun the siege of Smederevo, the, uh, the Serbian capital at the time, when the Hungarians arrived to assist the Serbs. Now, the Hungarian arrival forced the Ottomans to lift the siege, although they continued plundering the countryside until a smaller Ottoman army was met and defeated by Hunyadi. Now, it seems the Hungarians then invaded Ottoman territories and devastated Vidin before heading back into Serbia. But I kind of found scattered references to the Ottomans eventually taking the Serbian capital at Smederovo and its main mining center at Novo Bordo. But yeah, honestly, the details of this war were quite unclear. But what we do know is that while the Ottomans were on the offensive in Serbia, Skanderbeg was actually on the offensive in Albania. Remember, back in 1449, the Ottomans had secretly scaled the walls of the important central Albanian fortress of Berat during the night, slaughtering the garrison and taking the city. Uh, I'll attach a photo of the fortress I took while traveling through Albania in 2010 on the website, so you can go check that out. Seriously, Berat is super cool. Anyways, Skanderbeg had around 15,000 soldiers, along with some artillery from Aragon, and he laid siege to Berat and tried to kind of pound it into submission. Soon, believing it was only a matter of time before the city and its tiny garrison fell, Skanderbeg left with most of his forces. However, shortly after this, an Ottoman relief army of 20,000 soldiers arrived, completely taking the Albanians off guard. Now, the Albanians managed to hold out until Skanderbeg could return, whereupon he defeated the Ottomans. But the Albanian losses by this point were significant. Skanderbeg had lost over 5,000 of his initial 15,000, including nearly all of his foreign troops, along with their advanced knowledge of siege warfare. Remember, the Ottomans could, basically they could lose army after army, well, small armies that is, in Albania, but the Albanians themselves... Well, their soldiers were far more precious. They didn't have the manpower resources to just replace them the way the Ottomans could. So, in light of these losses, Skanderbeg was forced to abandon the siege of Berat. So, in essence, he had won the battle with the relief force, but he had failed in his siege. Still, those losses and manpower knowledge were substantial enough to have a lasting effect on Skanderbeg's war against the Ottomans. Now, in the fall of that year, 1455, trade resumed between Hungary and Wallachia, signaling a kind of improvement in these relations. Uh, we haven't talked about them for a while, but remember there was some awkward fighting between the two. However, the Wallachian voivoda Vladislav then retook territories which Hunyadi had conquered three years previously in spite of their alliance. Now, Hunyadi well, basically, he'd had enough at this point. He was quite angry over Vladislav's actions and angry over the continued bad relations between Hungary and Wallachia. And so, somehow, Hunyadi decided to change his support from Vladislav to Vlad the Impaler. Remember, the guy Dracula is based on. Um, now, Vlad had the backing and support, and so he, well, basically sought revenge uh, for the losses he had suffered on behalf of himself and his family against Vladislav. So, in essence, just to recap, Hunyadi originally supported Vladislav against Vlad the Impaler. Vladislav became Voivoda, and then Hunyadi got annoyed with them and switched to supporting Vlad the Impaler against Vladislav. So, in response to this, Vladislav began actually working with the Ottomans and even raided Hungarian territory in Transylvania with their backing. Yeah, honestly, Wallachian politics are very confusing to me at this point. Like, 
everyone's fighting everyone. It's always very confusing with uh, Hungary and the Ottomans as the main kind of external forces. But that's how it stands at this moment. In the early months of 1456, King Ladislaus visited Buda. Remember, Ladislaus, he's technically still king of Hungary, even though he doesn't really do anything and Hunyadi runs the show. show. Well, yeah, he, he's visiting Buda. The king, along with some nobles, actually accused Hunyadi of abusing his authority. Not a terribly kind of unreasonable accusation at this point, to be honest, but they reconciled in time for Hunyadi to kind of go off and deal with bigger problems because at that time, the Ottomans were back in Hungary and had an army double the size of the previous one. So it seems that Ladislaus was attempting to kind of assert his authority in Hungary, but when the Ottomans arrived, well, Hunyadi had to kind of, uh, I don't know, well, Ladislaus couldn't afford to lose Hunyadi uh, as such a brilliant commander with such great, long experience fighting the Ottomans. So, you know, bygones were bygones. Now, this new Ottoman force completed the conquest of Smedervo and Novobordo in Serbia. Um, but what we do know is that at that point, it seems to have headed straight for Belgrade, then an important fortress which belonged to Hungary and kind of marked the border between Hungary and Serbia. Now, quick point, while all that was going on, the Pope once again called for a general crusade against the Ottomans, but no big surprise here, the power of Europe's had really no interest in the whole endeavor. Still, interestingly enough, many common people were encouraged by the Franciscan order to go fight in this great crusade the Pope was calling. And so in the summer of 1456, a great army assembled near Vienna, but an army of more common people. As this was happening, the Ottomans began their siege of Belgrade. Hunyadi gathered this combination of these sort of poorly equipped peasant troops inspired by the Pope and the Franciscans, along with the regular Hungarian army, uh, though with very little noble cavalry, because the nobles of Hungary were at this point very hesitant to participate in another crusade. Uh, after the previous crusade losses, you know, each time this happened, more and more nobles and their children were lost, more and more nobles lost uh, wealth and had to sometimes sort of pay ransoms and things. So the common people would. Well, they were inspired by the Pope or they were kind of doing what they were told, but the nobles, they were kind of more interested in sitting this one out. So all these Hungarian and foreign forces added up to about 30,000 soldiers, still about half the size of the Ottoman army, but, you know, they could make a difference. Now, fortunately for the Hungarians, they had a very strong navy on the Danube, and so they were able to go down and kind of meet the Ottoman ships. Now, important note at this point about the geography of Belgrade. It sits on a kind of V-shaped spit of land where the Sava and the Danube rivers meet. Thus, much of the, sh the siege was actually kept by Ottoman ships because well, maybe like more than two-thirds of the borders of the city of Belgrade are along the rivers. So the Hungarians attacked and managed to first destroy the bulk of the Ottoman navy, which meant that right away, supplies and reinforcements could enter the city. Still, it was facing heavy bombardment from the Ottomans who weren't about to kind of give up in spite of the fact that, well, their siege was no longer a real siege because it was easy to access the city. But the Ottomans no doubt knew that they had really missed their chance to mount a full frontal assault before those reinforcements arrived because Belgrade had pretty powerful walls. And even though that relief army was half the size of the Ottoman army, you know, once you factor in the powerful fortress, uh, suddenly things don't look so good for the Ottomans. So with new soldiers arriving every day to reinforce Belgrade, 
By that point, still several breaches had been created in the walls. Um, and so the Ottomans wasted no time and tried to mount a full attack before too many soldiers got in. The Janissary Corps quickly got inside of the city, but they were separated when Hungarians threw wood and covered it in tar and set the walls on fire. So Janissaries got in, but then they're trapped inside the city as the Ottoman assault on the walls was defeated and much of the Janissaries trapped inside Belgrade were massacred. The next day, in violation of Hunyadi's orders, much of the poorly trained peasant crusaders snuck outside of the city to loot Ottoman positions. They set up a battle line and began to harass the Ottomans. In response, Sabahi cavalry attempted to disperse them, but failed. Soon, more and more defenders were leaving the safety of the walls to join the force facing the Ottomans out in the open. And before Hunyadi could really get control of the situation, a full battle had broken out. Still, a Hungarian commander managed to take advantage of the situation and regain control quickly. One detachment was led out across the Saba during this time to get behind the Ottomans, while Hunyadi led his own contingent to take on the Ottoman artillery. The Ottomans were taken completely aback by the situation. Uh, they really weren't expecting the, the Hungarian and uh, Serbian forces to leave the safety of the city and attack them like this. And so their regular soldiers began to flee. The remaining Janissaries attempted to gain control of the situation, but it was no use as the main Hungarian force began to attack from the walls. The fighting became fierce and the Sultan himself managed to defeat a Hungarian knight in single combat, but not before taking an arrow to the knee and being quickly taken away to save his life. There was at this moment an enormous opportunity for Hunyadi to take his army and invade the Ottoman Empire or even just to kill the Sultan. I mean, my God, we've seen what a capable commander Mehmet was. And it's hard to imagine how Ottoman and European history would have been different had Mehmed died at this moment. But it was not to be. The army of crusading peasants was already fed up with leadership. I mean, remember, they had defied Hunyadi's orders and left the city walls, and that was what created this victory. And so they were on the brink of revolt. They didn't want to take Hunyadi's orders. And so John Hunyadi felt he had no choice but to disband the army and return to peace. Ultimately, the losses for the Ottomans were quite massive. I mean, they lost 13,000 men, many of whom were elite Janissaries, but we knew they could kind of absorb those losses. But what was even worse for them was the loss of around 200 ships and 300 cannons. Those were far more expensive and harder to replace. Still, the Hungarians didn't come out so easily. Just after the battle, plague broke out and John Hunyadi died three weeks later after his great but sort of unintentional victory. Hunyadi was 50 years old, and he had effectively ruled Hungary for about 10 years. He had won more battles against the Ottomans than any man of his era. And he left two sons and a legacy, which could perhaps one day come back to leave an impact on Hungary. But without a doubt, this was a problem, because as we just saw, right, Ladislaus was not exactly a powerful or commanding king of Hungary. Uh, and so Hunyadi had been so important during the last 10 years. He was the one commanding Hungarian policy, uh, raising army after army, uh, beating the Ottomans when no one else could. And so with his absence, no doubt there was a lingering question of what now? 
the eldest son, Ladislaus, uh, the eldest son of Hunyadi, who has the same name as the king of Hungary, just so we can be confusing. Well, Ladislaus was as bold as his father and not ready to give up power. And so he did in truly bold fashion. Uh, he made his move and he essentially kidnapped King Ladislaus and murdered his rivals. Um, but this ultimately backfired. Uh, and the king later had him and his brother imprisoned. Ladislaus was beheaded for treason and his brother, well, was just kept in prison. And so again, you know, we saw Hunyadi fall. His, his sons tried to quickly take control of the kingdom uh, to make sure that they don't lose the immense power that their father had uh, gathered. But within a short period of time, it's all for naught. In the meantime, well, Mehmet wasn't done with his conquests. Now, a major invasion of Hungary was clearly off the table. His reach had exceeded his grasp, and he had paid dearly for the mistake. Still, without having to face the fearsome walls of Belgrade again, there was still plenty of territory closer to home ripe for conquest. Namely, Bosnia, Serbia, Albania, Wallachia, and Moldavia. Anyways, following the Ottoman defeat at Belgrade, Brankovic regained control of Serbia but died within a year. Uh, he was actually 79 years old, so it's not exactly shocking. With his death, his wife and three sons fought over control of Serbia until his son Lazar poisoned his own mother and exiled his brother to take full control. But shortly after, in 1457, Lazar agreed to become an Ottoman vassal once again in order to prevent yet another invasion. Obviously, he couldn't rely on the kind of support he had gotten from Hungary previously because, well, Hungary was dealing with its own succession crisis. Uh, Hunyadi wasn't around. You know, the, the Serbs knew that they were more or less on their own. And while all that was going on, well... No surprise, the Ottomans had not forgotten their old friend Skanderbeg, and an army of 15,000 men had been sent to deal with him in early 1456. Now, obviously this sounds a bit like the same old Ottoman strategy, but what was new here was that the commander of this force, Moisi Arinat Golemi, had been one of Skanderbeg's most trusted commanders before he deserted to the Ottomans. As such, this man knew Skanderbeg inside and out, even more than the previous Ottoman commander who had served with Skanderbeg in Anatolia. Therefore, while this Ottoman force was no larger than the previous ones, it was perhaps more deadly. Now, when the two armies met, Moisi's 15,000 Ottomans and the 12,000 Albanians under Skanderbeg, well, when they clashed, the battle began with single combat between one man of each army. The Albanian managed to stab and decapitate the Ottoman soldier, but following this loss, Moisi himself challenged Skanderbeg to single combat. Just as the two men were approaching one another, though, Moisi pulled back and instead readied his army for full battle. The two forces clashed, with Albanian cavalry initially gaining the upper hand and soon breaking the Ottoman forces. The battle quickly devolved into brutal hand-to-hand -hand combat, with both commanders themselves getting involved. Ultimately, the Albanians carried the day, with Moisi escaping with only around a third of his original 15,000 soldiers. By the time he limped back to Adrianople with his 5,000 soldiers, 
It's no surprise that he was not exactly welcomed with open arms. Scared for his life, he soon actually fled back to Skanderbeg and begged for forgiveness. Even more surprisingly, he received it. Skanderbeg restored his position and all of his lands. And so Moisi went back to fighting for Albania against the Ottomans, just like that. But around this time, dissent in Skanderbeg's own family brought new problems. When his nephew sold the fortress to the Ottomans for 30,000 silver ducats. When this was discovered, the nephew was imprisoned, but the fortress had still been sold. Then, when Skanderbeg had a son, another of his nephews defected to the Ottomans, his dreams of inheriting his uncle's position thwarted. Clearly, at this point, one of Skanderbeg's greatest weaknesses was the betrayal of those closest to him. Now, that same year, 1456, with Hungarian support, Vlad the Impaler successfully killed his rival Vladislav in hand-to-hand combat. Vlad then took control of Lakia and set about a bloody purge of all those who had opposed his family in the past decades, giving rise to his famous moniker, the Impaler. He also sought Hungarian promises of support against Ottoman expansion while continuing his annual payments to the Sultan. Back when Hunyadi died and his uh, son Ladislaus briefly controlled Hungary before being deposed, the young man doubted Vlad's loyalty and therefore supported Vladislav's brother Dan III for the throne. Again, Wallachian politics just never fails to be complicated. Now, honestly, at this point, the Hunyadi family really just needs to pick a side when it comes to the ongoing fight for control of Wallachia. but they refuse. And so uh, some local notables actually supported Vlad's illegitimate brother, creating a new three-way fight for power and who is going to be the Voivoda of Wallachia. But as Hungary descends into a minor, minor civil war with the execution of Hunyadi's son, Vlad takes the opportunity to expand his influence and win a powerful ally by helping a man named Stephen take the Moldavian throne. Now, Stephen's uncle had murdered his own father to take control, and so Stephen was out for revenge. That's basically a long story short. And so the two invaded Moldavia together and successfully installed Stephen on the throne in 1457. So now, lucky Vlad, he has an ally in control of the neighboring state. Vlad then set about raiding Hungarian Transylvania to take care, to sort of take advantage of the chaos in Hungary and, well, earn a few bucks. But just as all of this was occurring, something dramatic and unexpected was happening in Hungary. Vladislaus V of Hungary died unexpectedly at just 17 years old. I couldn't find any real references to how he died, but there was no kind of mention of foul play. And so suddenly, Hungary was thrown right back into a crisis as there was no clear air. The Diet of Hungary, a diet is another word for like an assembly during this period, uh, ele- kind of gathered to elect a new king. And, well, ironically enough, there was only one real contender. In spite of his brother's execution for treason, the second younger son of John Hunyadi, Matthias Hunyadi, well, he was the only guy who was, had kind of had the power and the influence. Um, and quite frankly, if the Diet refused to give Matthias the crown, it would invite civil war because, well, Matthias was Hunyadi's son and he wasn't about to just sort of take that lying down. So the nobles of Hungary, 
Well, they'd had enough of all this chaos, and they decided to elect the 14-year-old boy to be the new king of Hungary. Frankly, it was quite a rise for, the John, for John Hunyadi's family. Remember, Matthias's grandfather was simply a court knight from a relatively respectable family. Two generations later, he was king of Hungary. And now that's where I'm going to leave things today. Serbia is under the shaky leadership of Lazar Branković. Hungary has a brand new king, son of a powerful and dynamic ruler, but still only 14 years old and yet to prove himself. Vlad the Impaler is ruling Wallachia with an iron fist and has just installed the young and vibrant Stephen as ruler of Moldavia. And in Albania, despite a setback at the siege of Berat, Skanderbeg continues his winning streak, beating army after army sent to destroy him by the Ottomans. All in all, Mehmed the Conqueror is facing some unexpected setbacks following his conquest of Constantinople. And yet, throughout the region, new and inexperienced rulers, minus Skanderbeg and Vlad, left some states potentially vulnerable to Ottoman expansion. Frankly, the big question is, where will Mehmet strike next? Will it be Serbia, Wallachia, Albania, Morea in Greece, or perhaps somewhere in Anatolia? Or maybe several at once. You really can't put much past the young and voracious Mehmet. Next time, we'll see what his next move is. But before you go... I found some really nice quotes from a foreign traveler in Bulgaria uh, during the decades of Ottoman conquest. And, well, I didn't really know where to bring this up in the, the podcast, so I thought I'd just stick them down here. Now, these quotes are about what happened to Bulgaria's ruling boyar class, and they're from a wonderful website, only in Bulgarian, unfortunately, but it's called bulgarianhistory.org. If you want to use Google Translate or speak the language, you can check it out. There's some great articles there. So the first quote is from a Flemish noble named Ozi Gislen Busbeck, who expressed his opinions as sort of impressions of Bulgaria as follows. Quote, Here I come to mind how light and illusory is what is generally considered a nobleman. Because when I wanted to learn about some girls who were more of a more noble appearance of what kind they were, I heard that they were leading from the highest boyars of this Bulgarian people, or even from a royal family. But now, they were married for shepherds. The nobility in this land is so dim, end quote. Now, the Lithuanian-German uh, Reinhold Lubinau, three decades later, had a similar impression of Bulgarian lands. He noted that, quote, In this country, Bulgaria has no nobles at all, as in all Turkish lands. Someone who wants to be famous with nobility or pedigree cannot express himself with exquisite. Many of the old rulers' families marry for shepherds' daughters, and so the aristocracy is completely eradicated. Such nobles who are too proud and uh, despise others around us, well, may well think that now gentler maidens of royal family may marry peasants. End quote. So just a quick point there about what happened to the nobility of, hung of, uh, of Bulgaria. Basically, they married anyone, and so they gradually vanished. So that's going to be all for today. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music, as always, was written and performed by Teddy Raven. So, uspech. Good luck.